This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all doing well and staying warm. We've had some record cold temperatures, especially up here in northern New England. You know it's cold when you put on seven or eight layers of clothing and you're still freezing. Anyway, with all of the snow, it's been great weather for tromping around in snowshoes and doing a little cross-country skiing. I'm always amazed by the number of animal tracks we find in the snow. And it is fun using a guidebook and trying to figure out who's been traveling through our yard. So far, my husband and I have identified the tracks of deer, rabbits, long-tailed weasels, opossum, and red fox. You never realize how much wildlife is in your yard until the snow falls. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. We will be interviewing Ben Killam from the Killam Bear Center. Ben is a wildlife rehabilitator who raises orphaned and injured black bear cubs in New Hampshire. And now for some interesting news. Apparently, we aren't the only gardeners in our backyards. According to a new study, ants may play a crucial role in the propagation of woodland plant species like bloodroot, trilliums, wild ginger, and violets. Ants act like gardeners by carrying wildflower seeds to fertile areas, according to scientists, who recently presented their findings at an annual meeting of the Ecological Society of America. While ants prefer to eat the nutritious seed coat surrounding the seed and then discard the seed itself, the surprising research is showing that ants secrete an antimicrobial chemical that protects the seed from predation and disease, increasing its likelihood of sprouting into a plant. The study also shows that seed-dispersing ants are a vital link to the regeneration of disturbed forests. The loss of seed-carrying ants has detrimental impacts on forested areas and the restoration of understory plant communities, according to scientists. The research also shows ants prefer to inhabit environments with decaying logs and other rotting vegetative matter. Another good argument for not removing the leaves from the yard. And now let's take a moment to talk about decoding or demystifying the garden. Of course, we're all perusing the full-color gardening catalogs right now, warm inside our homes, sipping hot chocolate, and envisioning the beautiful gardens we will create come springtime. When you think about it, a gardening catalog is really a device we use to launch our imagination, our daydreaming, and our planning. And scouring the catalogs, those compendiums of colorful delights, can get us through the bleakest of winters. 
Of course, choosing from those catalogs is the easiest part of gardening, right? You just run your finger down each page, find what looks good, circle it with your pen, and then max out your credit card. Not really. It can, in fact, be the most important part of the gardening that we do. And here's why. It can be easy to go off the rails when ordering new plants or seeds. Let's face it, we can get carried away by our curiosity and our enthusiasm. What we choose in the catalog is not always what we actually need in the yard. How many gardeners have uttered the optimistic phrase, I'll find a place for it somewhere, and then felt utter panic once spring arrived and there was absolutely no place to put it? I call it the kiss of death purchase. Because what happens then? Often, out of sheer desperation, the plant is stuck in a spot that is suboptimal and it does not survive. There is an age-old saying among gardeners that one should never buy plants unless one has the space. And I would also add to that by saying it's important to know, before buying seeds or plants, exactly which space I intend to fill. The key to success is the right plant in the right place. And therein lies the challenge. I find it's really important to take stock and examine my planting charts over the last several years. Did everything I planted survive? Does every plant seem to be thriving in the location I chose? If certain plants didn't make it, then why? Some common missteps can include planting a shade-loving species in a spot that is unexpectedly too sunny, or a plant that prefers dry soil may have ended up planted in an unmapped damp area. I am guilty as charged on both of these counts. I have learned my lesson, and I now keep careful record of the plants I have purchased, and I also have created maps so I can chart where I have planted them. This has helped me save time, money, frustration, and regret. Gardening is our passion, and it should be enjoyed to the fullest. Disappointing results can lead to disillusionment, and then finally, disenchantment. And then we're off to another hobby, like, say, I don't know, stamp collecting? I like to survey the yard as summer turns to fall. I look for spaces where plants could go, and I write these locations down in my notebook. I have also found it is worth taking the time to examine how each catalog conveys its planting information. What's popular right now with a lot of catalogs are these tiny little hieroglyphic symbols that describe whether the plant likes sun or shade, or wet soil, or moist soil, or dry soil. Of course, you want to be as accurate as you possibly can. And that will require extra research into each plant, far beyond what the catalog tells you. This new practice has caused me to become intimately familiar with my yard. I have now formed a relationship with my gardens. My gardens have transformed from places I do things to, to places I do things for. I spend a lot of time in my gardens just doing nothing. Just looking, just listening, watching the weather counting the hours of sun, taking note of the wind, taking dictation. I'm letting the garden tell me what it needs. So instead of letting the catalogs dictate what to buy, I let the configuration of my yard and the plants in it tell me what to choose next. I am decoding my garden. I am doing that by finding the plants that are already growing successfully on my property and looking up their sun and soil preferences. There are mysteries to be solved out there. Then I go to my gardening catalogs and look for plants and seeds whose requirements match those of the plants I already have. As we work each section of our yards, we slowly unveil the hidden worlds that exist above and below ground. 
and we tuck that information away for future plant orders. At the same time, we form an even deeper bond with the earth than we ever dreamed possible. And that is the true joy of gardening. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? That's the call of the red-tailed hawk. The red-tailed hawk is one of the largest raptors in North America, with female red tails weighing up to four pounds and sporting a wingspan of up to five feet in length. Highly adaptable, the red tails' numbers are up, and the species even seems to be thriving in suburban areas. This raptor has learned how to capitalize on the new hunting opportunities brought about by the building of housing developments, which forces prey out into the open. Big and chunky with the renowned reddish-brown tail, these hawks can often be seen perched on top of telephone poles, scanning roads and open fields for their next meal. Eating food is definitely at the top of this bird's priority list. To survive the winter, a red tail must consume the equivalent of four to five chipmunks per day. That's a whole lot of hunting. The red tail is also fond of eating squirrels, rabbits, rats, snakes, pheasants, and quail. A red tail can carry away prey weighing up to five pounds. Their eyesight is superior, eight times more powerful than a human's, and they can spot a tiny mouse from 10 stories above, making them one of the top predators in North America. This bird of prey is famous for its tactical hunting maneuvers. Mates will often pair up when it's dinner time. One red tail will pursue the prey and the other red tail will ambush the fleeing bird or mammal by blocking its path, slowing it down and making it easier to grab. Like owls, the red tail devours smaller prey in one swallow. This can include mice and voles. The highly acidic juices in the red tail's stomach digest bones, providing the calcium the bird needs. Any animal parts not needed, like fur, are later coughed up in the form of a pellet. The red tail routinely fasts for 24 hours at a time to clear its digestive system before resuming hunting activities. This raptor often builds nests on cliffs and rock outcrops, but has a preference for stone ledges, which is how red tails like Pale Male and his mate Lola became famous worldwide after deciding to build their nest on the window ledge of a very posh Fifth Avenue apartment building in Manhattan. However, they can also be seen nesting in the crowns of extremely tall trees, and if you see a giant nest on a billboard, that's a red tail. Both male and female red tails work together to build their nest, which they line with strips of bark, moss, and lichens. The female usually lays two to three eggs, which are an interesting color combination of white and tan, decorated with splotches and speckles of purple and reddish brown. The nestlings grow quickly and are very precocious, jumping out of the nest and onto neighboring branches to explore their surroundings by the age of four weeks. However, once a youngster reaches juvenile status, it will follow its parents around for the remainder of the summer, learning how to hunt. After that, the young bird is on its own. The red tail must work hard to protect its young, since its large-sized stick nest attracts predators who will grab eggs and nestlings if left unattended. The red tail is extremely aggressive and will fight fiercely against any approaching interloper. Once their stiletto-sharp talons are wrapped around flesh, they rarely let go. Red-tailed hawks mate for life. 
New research is showing that while most birds do not have a strong sense of smell, the olfactory abilities of the red tail are highly developed, and they identify their mate and offspring by scent. Red tails are famous for kiting, which occurs when they rise slowly into the sky to find a thermal updraft, and then hold still facing against the wind like a kite, floating effortlessly to conserve energy. This is why they are also known as soaring hawks. The oldest known red tail lived to be 30 years old. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Dr. Ben Killam, Black Bear Cub Rehabilitator and founder of the Killam Bear Center in New Hampshire. Ben, along with his wife Deb and sister Phoebe Killam, has rescued and rehabilitated orphaned and injured black bear cubs for 30 years. His pioneering methods in raising cubs to adequately survive in the wild has resulted in new approaches to bear rehabilitation worldwide. He is the author of two books, Among the Bears, in which he chronicles his initial efforts to relate to the cubs and teach them how to fend for themselves in the wild. And the second book, Out on a Limb, which is filled with primary research into the biology and behavior of the black bear and how humans can help the bears. He was asked by the Chinese government to help reintroduce the rare giant red panda back into the wild and has traveled to China several times to teach his innovative methods. This collaboration resulted in an award-winning 3D IMAX movie called Pandas. Ben has been chronicled in National Geographic and his work has been the subject of numerous documentaries. Ben Killam, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So can you tell me all about the Killam Bear Center and what you do there? Well, we started the Killam Bear Center two years ago and have been doing our work for about 30 years. We raise and rehabilitate orphan black bear cubs and return them to the wild. Over the course of 30 years, we've rehabilitated and returned to the wild over 300 cubs. So you guys started roughly 30 years ago doing this? Yes. And what got you started? What was it that got you interested in bears? I had always had an interest in carnivores. And when I started, when Phoebe and I first got our, our rehabilitator's license, there was no rehabilitation of black bears. Maine had a program, but a minimal one and, and none in the rest of New England. Forrest Hammond from Vermont had two orphan cubs as the result of his Stratton Mountain Bear study. And he heard that I wanted to study behavior and interviewed me and asked me if I take the cubs. And I said, well, you know, I don't have a license and it's a pretty, pretty tricky issue there. They really don't want rehabilitators with bears. And I said, but if you'll contact New Hampshire and they're willing to give me a license, I'll be happy to take the cubs. Well, the next morning I had a license in hand. The rest is history. So. That is great. So now your rehabilitation efforts have really grown over that 30 years. I mean, you started out, you had bear cubs in a baby crib, right? When you first started. They were, they were in a wicker basket, which we used until it fell apart. But they have to be warm. You can't 
put them out in the weather when they come in, you know, anywhere from two to six weeks old. So, you know, we get all kinds of cubs. We get those really early cubs, and then we get abandonment cubs, and then we get cubs where the mothers have been shot at chicken coops or at garbage or things like that. And then late in the year, we get cubs that haven't had enough food and, and show up at people's bird feeders or in residential areas. So now you are operating, you've got a full-scale outdoor enclosure, you've got warming dens for the cubs, and now you just added another building. What What is that building for? Well, the building is, we've had our original barn and indoor enclosures for about 25 years or so, and they're unheated and only have cold running water, and it's been a challenge when we get cubs that are hypothermic and and the young cubs, uh, just we've had to do the young cubs still in the house. The new building will have an 11 acre enclosure attached to it. It has a cub barn, just like the other one, two indoor enclosures and a cub rearing area. It has heat, hot and cold running water and is much more suitable for what we've been doing over the years. How many cubs did you have this year? We're at 43, and they may still come in. I wouldn't be surprised after this heavy snow if they show up some more. Right. And what kind of crew do you have helping you? Do you have college students doing internships with you? Well, for the most part, it's Phoebe does the day-to-day care. My wife, Debbie, does all the accounting and answering and thank you notes and answering of donations and I do all the lugging of food, getting food, bringing it here, and getting the bedding materials. And I build dens and do all the physical work that's required. We do have Phoebe's getting help when she can. Sometimes she's had a couple of high school kids that were very good. Now, you, you also uh, just turned nonprofit recently, correct? So you can accept donations? Yeah, we, that was two years ago. That's from the Kill and Bear Center officially took place. That's really made a huge difference. It's a huge amount of work for Debbie. She carries the burden of that because you've got to fill out the 990s and thank yous and acknowledgments. And, but the reality is that for when you have a building to build, like we had a building to build, there, there are other foundations that need to give away a percentage of their funds to a receiving foundation. And they've found us. That they're the ones responsible for the building. So tell me now, what is the number one reason you get bear cubs at the center? Well, there isn't any number one reason. There's a whole variety of reasons. The early cubs can be the result of a winter logging operation or, or a land, a lot clearing operation. When they clear lots for homes, they usually pile all the brush to burn in the winter. And then they go to burn the brush and the excavator starts to dig in and a mother bear flies out and there's cubs that she's not going to return to. Dramatic exposures of dens the mothers won't return to. If you can get out of there quickly and give them a chance, they'll come back in and take care of the cubs and sometimes even move them. And the logging situations in the fall, they use fella bunchers, which they cut bunches of trees. And then the rains come, so they leave some of those bunches in the woods to pull them out in the wintertime. They go back to pull them out, and there's a bear already denned up in them. So uh, 
that's been the cause of some of them in from Vermont have been rabbit hunters whose dogs have gone into the dens not to have a good result. And then the hunter shoots the bear in the process. So what's the tiniest baby bear you've ever had come in? Well, this spring we got the tiniest ones and it was a rabbit hunting situation. Fortunately, the rabbit hunter called authorities and got the cubs rescued and was remorseful about his actions and truthful about them. But the cubs were about a week to a week and a half old, weighing a, a pound to two pounds. And there were three of them. So and then their eyes were shut. And that was a long period of raising babies. When you get those young cubs, you're feeding them four times a day. You're literally sleep deprived. And how are they doing now? Well, they're fine. They're all the only one that has any issues. And I just that he's different than his brother and sister is the one that actually got bit by the beagle. So it, it shows that there's early trauma affects a cub for its life. So that's true with humans as well. Right. So I was going to say taking in cubs that are that tiny, like just a week and a half old, that must require like you were saying, is round-the-clock feedings. And how does that affect them for the long term? Our method of rehabbing, we mix all the cubs together. So they're in with the ones that come in later and have different experiences before they come. And and they make friends and get along with other bears. And they want really want to be bears. So they're, our job is to make them so they can survive in the wild and and interact and socialize with other bears. And that's what they choose to do. Yeah. And all these bears, the scientific word is ontogeny. It's development over time. And by the time they're 18 months, they're ready to go. They're looking over the horizon. And they're a very different bear from even what they are right now at at 12 months old. So bears are very social. They like to be with other bears. Could you talk about that for a minute? They're social like we are. They're reciprocal altruists. They can make friends with strangers and cooperate with them, travel with them. And they exchange favors with a time delay. And that's, that's what we do. My oldest bear that I've studied all these years is a cub I released back in 96. I think her name is Squirty. She came to me as a three pound cub that was six weeks old. She's now 25 years old and will hopefully be giving birth to a litter of cubs this winter. She's already in her winter den. So I followed Squirty and her family and her extended family. And and when I put her out into the wild uh, as yearlings, a female bear that had no cubs at the time took her and her siblings on and I caught them together in a in a beach stand one morning, and I scared my cubs, and they treed. As I entered the beach stand, I broke a large stick, and this female bear came over and false charged me and defended my cubs from me. And Squirty has allowed, since that time, allowed that female and all her female offspring to have access to her food. She controls an oak ridge. They control a large area of beach. And when there's no beech nuts, they come on to Squirty's ground. And when there's uh, no acorns, she goes on to their ground. And there can be as much as a year time delay in the exchange of favors. It reduces uh, aggression and competition for food. 
So they really don't forget when a, another bear helps them. No, they, they, they remember for life. And that's why bears live as long as they do. A, a, a black bear can live up to 40 years. And they live a long time for the same reason we do, to take advantage of social con contracts over time. Do you ever take in uh, juvenile or adult bears? Is it strictly baby bears for rehabilitation? Well, it's, it's, it's essentially baby bears. If Fish and Game brings us a bear that can be re recovered in a short period of time and returned to where it came from, We've had a couple of them where they, they get struck by a car and they have some head trauma and, and it's just a matter of, you know, giving them some steroids and reducing the swelling and, and letting them recover and then they're released. So those we've kept for about a week or two weeks or something. But for the most part, we do not handle adult bears. So the cubs come to you after the mother is shot by a hunter or a citizen? The majority of them are not hunters. Like in a year like this where there's abundance of acorns uh, and a lot of food in the woods, the cubs can get enough food, hibernate, and survive. It's years when there's no food in the woods uh, that the, all the cubs show up. 2018 was one of those years. We ended up with, I think, 84 cubs. And they were all 20-pound cubs showing up in residential areas. At what age do they switch from being nursed over to eating solid food? We switch them as, as fast as we can. Uh, nursing is, is a lot of work. They would like to be nursed forever. But generally by May, they're, they're eating, beginning to eat solid foods. And quickly they get onto apples and dog food and whatever else we have. So basically you go from bottle feeding to having them drink out of a bowl. And then finally you kind of segue them over to more and more solid food. Yeah. Right. And and we often, if it's, it's the very young cubs, we'll walk them in the forest when they're really young and they'll start eating vegetation almost right away. Mm -hmm. And the older cubs all go into the eight acre enclosure. The fall cubs will sometimes stay in our cub barn because you can't mix them as easily. They mix best when they're all in a small enclosure and go out together. So right now, I think we have 29 in the eight acre enclosure and 15 or so in the cub barn. Now, bears have this unique ability. In fact, the, the organ in their mouth that they use for foraging was named after you. Could you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I gave it the name because I realized very quickly that if I, if I didn't and somebody stole my idea and work, it would get, take a different path. But they have an accessory organ to the vomeronasal system or the Jacobson's organ. And it lays in a pocket in the vomer and it's connected to the Jacobson's organ. And there's a sensory nerve that comes down to the roof of the mouth. And there's a bundle of sensory nerves that go up the vomer under the brain and spread out over the roof of the throat. So any scent they take in through their nose or mouth passes over this region and they get a vomeronasal reading on that. Vomeronasal organ identifies uh, new scents and plants and things like that. So they can hold a leaf in their mouth for a few seconds and determine if it's edible or not. The Native Americans observe the black bear to find out which foods were useful for foods or pharmaceuticals.
And how soon do they start exhibiting that behavior? Is it as soon as they start walking around? Yes, as soon as they're born. I mean, they literally, what they, what I, I first see is a, what I call a slow lick. So if a cub were six weeks old and I put my camera down, I had my scent on it, the tongue would come out to read my scent. And even the, the function of the, of the vomar nasal has been misunderstood by science because they've always said that it's primarily used for tracking, heat sensing and tracking and stuff like that. But bears use it for all kinds of things, from food identification, scent identification, to how long scent's been around. For, they can read airborne scent, which most animals can't. If they get a puff of scent in the wind, they know whose scent that is and can react accordingly. The true bears who have this organ have no long-range vocalizations. And most of the mammals that lack it all have long-range vocalizations. So could you talk a minute about that saying, a fed bear is a dead bear? Well, that's just reflecting on the fact that it's very risky for bears to end up around people because that's when they get shot at chicken coops and stuff like that. And yeah, I've worked... I've written two books and and worked my entire life lecturing, trying to get people to coexist with bears. But you can reach about half the people and the other half, not so much. And it doesn't have to be that way. We could could easily live with them, but we are not very good at managing attracted. Our bird feeders, our unsecured garbage, our chicken coops, and chicken coops can be protected with a simple electric fence, baited electric fence. Any livestock can be, and they all should be. But as long as the state law says that you can shoot a bear defending, you know, your property or yourself, what's property? You know, people get away with shooting bears over their garbage. And at least in Vermont, they require that they take adequate steps to protect their livestock before they can shoot a bear. I think it's so important for our listeners to know that it's crucial to keep garbage cans contained with a cover and bungee cords to make sure that the lid is secure and to get them in the garage or the garden shed if you can. You've got to keep smell under control. A bear will go right into, you know, they can get access, but the best place to store it is an airtight building, which means your garage or basement. If you have a shed, make it airtight. A shed with the wind blowing through it is going to, it's smell that attracts bears. They don't come looking for food. They come knowing there's food there. That smell can bring them from a mile or more away through the forest. I know we've had several instances with, uh, you know, at Dartmouth College, some of the college students that were new to the area with their first semester were just weren't aware of how their garbage was attracting bears in the area. And also we had, we had some people that were putting out donuts to try and attract the bears to their backyard. These are things that I think it's important for the listeners to understand that are, are going to result in the bear being shot eventually. Well, it's all about food attractants. And unfortunately, people can justify what they're doing easily. People all have rights. It's not like you can tell them. Uh, the best you can do is try to educate them. The people that don't have bird feeders, don't have garbage where the bears can get at them. I lecture and they come up to me, I've never seen a bear in my life. And I said, well, you're doing everything right. 
And uh, then there's others that come up and they got pictures of bears. I know what's going on. You know, I know they got food out around their house. And I've been to some of those places and a bear gets hit on the road in front of their house because they attracted bears. They don't care as long as there's another bear there for them to watch. You know, humans are humans and it's, it, they're very hard to educate. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize just how intelligent the bears are. Well, the bears rival the great apes in intelligence. They're probably better at solving problems intuitively than, than the great apes are. I've done a number of experiments trying to see how fast they could solve puzzles, and it's a nanosecond. I hung food out of their reach, which is modeled after the experiment done on chimpanzees by Wolfgang Kohler. With the chimpanzees, they hung bananas up where they couldn't reach them, and uh, they were captive chimps, and eventually they figured out how to stack boxes or hold a stick and knock them down. Well, I did it with bears, and I had cameras that would only film for two minutes. And uh, the bears, the first time a bear came, it attempted to jump. And then it went up and grabbed the rope. The, the food was hung on, snapped the rope several times, and the food dropped off, and it got the food. And the next bear that came along did the same thing, but couldn't get it and climbed the tree and went arm over arm down the rope and grabbed the corn and dropped off and got the food. So, you know, they solve puzzles very, very quickly. And it's one of the reasons why they're considered a nuisance because it's almost impossible to put a bird feeder out they can't get to. So now, given their high intelligence, are you confident or hopeful that they'll be able to adapt to climate change? Oh, they'll adapt. There's no no question about that. People will not be as happy because the bird breeding period will grow shorter as the winters are less severe. But no, the bears are going to adapt. They're perfectly capable of survival. Are you seeing any changes in behavior with them already due to climate change? Only that, you know, the male bears in a year when there's plenty of food, either beech nuts or acorns, and a low amount of snow, the, the male bears can be out most of the winter. Their job in life is to get big enough to mate, and they have to compete with other males, so they grow big. And if there's food, access to food, they're going to take advantage of it. The bred females go to den in November regardless because they put on a lot of weight to, to reproduce. And the females with cubs go to den next, but the males, their job is just to get as big as possible. But when we get a heavy snow like we just got, most of the bears will be denned up. And how does a female bear prepare to give birth? What does she do? She'll put on 50% of her body weight and fat. And den locations are found throughout the year. And she may pre-den for a while. And then when the hard weather comes, she'll suddenly go into the den. It'll be a, a straight shot. There's no looking for it at that time. So they know where they're going to den. They've planned it. And when the, when the time comes, they prefer to go in during a snowstorm or when there's no snow on the ground. So there's no tracks or trails leading up to the den. Do they tend to go back to the same den year after year or do they find new fresh dens every year? Well, they find often have a fresh den, but there's no question there's dens that they prefer and will reuse multiple times. Do the females give birth every year? Females give birth every other year, so they 
their cubs leave them when they're 18 months old. And once they're bred, they chase off their cubs and uh, don't let them approach. So they have six months to fatten up and they do that and then den up. But the female bears get really fat when they're bred. Do they ever come out of the den before winter is over? No, generally not. Only in the, if there's an access to food and if it's a male bear. I've known male bears get up and hit, hit a few bird feeders and go back back to den. But the females, I've had, had a, uh, in no food years, females with yearlings stay at the den until it greens up just to conserve energy. They're masters at energy conservation. And when do the females typically give birth? They give birth in January. They're bred in May, June, and early July. They're delayed implanters. They implant in late November, early December, which synchronizes their birth dates. And they're generally born in the middle of January. All right. So the cubs, the emerge from the den with the mother, fully able to run and walk, their eyes are open? Yeah, because the den emergence isn't till the snow is gone and mild weather comes. So they're not emerging until late March, early April. Mm-hmm. And again, she'll stay at her den long enough. She'll have a climbing tree for them and she'll stay at the den for a month or more after den emergence. So her cubs can learn to walk and climb and, and travel with her. And then the cubs follow the mother and they learn from the mother what is safe and what isn't. Yeah, she's kind of the protective umbrella that allows them to explore a complex home range. They wouldn't travel at all if they didn't have her. And when I raised my first cubs, they were free to go. They, could, they, they stayed within an acre for the first six months unless they followed me out of that small area. I could use a fenceless home range and, and maintain them. So that's a method you have perfected, right? You, you taught them to follow you? They instinctively follow, so it's not much teaching. But it's yeah, I, I did that. You know, when I started, there was a whole bunch of stuff out there that didn't make any sense. You know, there was papers written that said cubs could survive from five months on, and they didn't have to spend that time with their mother. Well, yeah, they can survive, but they can't get through the winter because they can't put on the fat. They're the bottom of the hierarchy. And so I wanted to know, you know, what was the job of the mother bear? Why did she take 18 months? And in that, I, did, I learned about ontogeny and development. The cub wasn't even ready, mature enough to leave its mother until 18 months. And it wasn't, it wouldn't travel anywhere. You know, the area that it would travel in, you know, it'd start out at a, couple of acres and then increased to five or six acres and then increased by fall they might be 20 acres and then in the spring it was 100 acres and all of a sudden it was all of outdoors but that was development and so you really can't push the envelope and you've got to give them an opportunity to to climb to socialize with other bears to identify natural foods and interact with the wild bears and both of our enclosures are in the woods and wild bears come to the outside all the time. So they, they have a good sense of what's going on. And this, you know, puffs of scent come from the wild bears. So. 
during that 18 months? Are they intermittently nursing from the mother while they're foraging? Doing both? Yeah. Uh, the, the cub with its natural mother, depending on the condition of the mother and her her rank in the hierarchy, because there is a social hierarchy in bears, will Squirty being the matriarch, she often nursed her cubs right up until the time they left her at 18 months. And then she'd have to dry off and go through that process. But but others aren't as fit as she uh, has been and stopped nursing during uh, the wintertime. So I imagine the uh, bear's milk has some type of what, either colostrum or some type of potent antibiotic property in it. And yeah, well, all, all, mammal, all mammals have colostrum. And I don't know how long it stays in it. it uh, it's definitely there in the first milk that they get uh, for the first month or so. But it, it diminishes after that. We haven't had any problem, even with those cubs that came in at a week to two weeks old, had adequate amount of colostrum. That they, they were perfectly healthy cubs. That's great. So what in your mind is, are some of the most fascinating aspects about the bear and bear behavior? Well, I, I'll go back to their social behavior. And, you know, I'm, I'm still struggling getting papers published, but that's the only time science pays attention to anything. I've written about their social behavior in both of my books. But the fact is that they're the only non-human animal that shares our social behavior. And they're probably a, a huge part of the explanation of why we became human. They look for that in the great apes. They studied the great apes because they were our closest genetic relative. The chimpanzee is supposed to be 99% of our DNA. And the bears are a group of animals that have friends, cooperate, exchange access to food. So there's some things humans could learn from bears, apparently. Well, there's a lot, but we got to get over ourselves, you know, and we also have to be willing to take on new information. And, you know, it, it will come with publishing papers in scientific journals. We're, we're close on my paper on matrilinear hierarchy. I have a communications paper that we're working on, and then finally we'll do the reciprocal altruism paper. Great. So now you've written how many books? I've written two books. Two books. I'm dyslexic, so all this is a, you know, it's a challenge. Even getting my PhD was a challenge, but I managed is there a third book in the wings? Yeah, we got. I got some ideas, and there's somebody who wants to ghost author that wants to write one, and a publisher that's interested. So, right now they're doing a dog book. So we'll wait and see what happens on that. I get all. I get constantly get people wanting to come film bears or documentaries, and I don't pay attention to a lot of them. I let them go in the wind, but that that's just the nature of. A lot of it, they want access to bears, and it doesn't benefit the Kill and Bear Center at all. So there's, there's very little reason to, you know, put up with them. Now you actually traveled to China. Can you talk about your work with the pandas? Yeah, I was invited to go to China with a Global Cause Foundation that was doing scientific exchange between the Chinese scientists and American scientists. And they were hoping to, to work with pandas over there. And I went with a scientific delegation to the Chengdu Panda Base. And they were made presentations on the effects of climate change on pandas, which has 
much more impact than with with black bears because the, the pandas stay up all winter they don't hibernate and they move up and down in elevation to, to find the area that's best for them and obviously climate change affects that elevation but the group of scientists all gave very scientific presentations and again i didn't have a phd at the time i gave my normal presentation which is essentially pictures and videos that i've taken with an explanation of the behavior that's going on and at the end of my presentation who wrong who's the director of science and research came up to me and she said we noticed your presentation was quite a lot different from the other presentations and she said you make us think the next day i was taken off to the department of forestry that's in charge of all the forest lands and the wild panda population and they got very excited about my presentation and four years went by and they had questions and they wanted me they invited me back over to give another presentation they were worried that if they walked their cubs they would cubs would run off and they would lose an animal worth a million dollars for rental fees a year they were worried that if their workers were out were out with a bear like squirty a panda like squirty that the wild pandas would come and attack them and so we invited them to come to new hampshire we had six bottle fed cubs that year and they sent a delegation of hurong their veterinarian and another scientist in in charge of the rehabilitation efforts over the reintroduction efforts over there and we took the cubs for a walk up on the hill and the cubs you know identified new plants and we took them to a bear mark tree and they got all excited about the scent and they did stiff legged walks coming off of the tree and Huron got very excited she says they can communi- communicate with wild bears without even meeting them and of course the pandas can too and that evening we took them up to see squirty and squirty came out and several wild bears and nobody attacked the truck and they got even more excited they had a 7 hour ride back to philadelphia and they talked the entire way back and following march we had the first pandas for a panda reintrodu- reintroduction program that was modeled off the work that i done with the black bears and that's that's ongoing i want to thank ben killam for sharing all of that great information with us if you would like to find out more about the killam bear center in lyme new hampshire or make a donation please go to their website at killambearcenter.org you can also order ben's books from this website Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird-watching fun. For more information on one-third for the birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.